Welcome to the Eucatastrophe. I'm Joel, joined as always with Dave, and we are about to meander again through politics, pop culture, church and society to consider true human ends and how life may be enchanted. Last week we discussed Avengers Endgame. We didn't actually get a moment to reflect that some other cinematic moment of importance had happened recently, namely the release of the first trailer for Star Wars Rise of the Skywalker. And I watched it and I immediately started crying um, and <laughs> called Dave on the phone and just kind of wailed down the line to him. Um, now, Dave was crying for a different reason. Dave was crying because, as I understand it, Dave, it, it triggered for you again your anti-feminist agenda that uh, <laughs> Disney is just destroying. <laughs> Disney's just destroying what has been a, a good sort of canon um, through this figure of Ray, fully formed as a Jedi, and so on. You, you, you have some really, you have some good views on this, don't you? Oh, uh, listen. Now, the Tie Fighter speeding towards Ray clearly represents the authority of Scripture, <laughs> and and her flipping over that with a phallic yeah. symbol in yeah. her hand, yeah, really just. Is, is effacing something. Yeah, yeah. I don't know. Um, yeah, she's she's not even wearing a head covering. I know. Yeah. It's, it's terrible. And, you know, she just, she turns her back on it to begin yes. with and then she flips over it. Yes. Oh, my goodness. Yes. And the symbolism couldn't be clearer. <laughs> Crystal clear. <laughs> right, we're not actually talking about the Star Wars trailer, although maybe we should. Maybe we should have actually chosen that as a thing because I'm sure we could for half an hour or more or forever because we already have outside of the podcast. Actually, what we're doing is we are going to be discussing Notre Dame and sacred space. Yeah, so I think about two and a half weeks uh, at time of recording now, uh, we the world was kind of shocked by a fire that burnt for 15 hours. in uh, at, 15 hours? Yeah, 15 hours at the Cathedral of Notre Dame, risking um, kind of centuries of... Christian history, architectural history, artworks, um, holy relics, um, and the like. Uh, And what really struck me about this uh, was just how deeply people felt this. Mm. It was was a huge cultural moment. Um, I had the day off that day and was on Twitter most of the day looking at people's responses, and there was just a genuine deep sorrow and grief over it. Uh, people weren't unsh- weren't sure what was going to be saved and what wasn't. Um, people were sharing their photos um, of Notre Dame, um, way, just sharing stories about the significance it had for them personally, people who kind of proposed out the front of it and things like that. So that's what really, really touched me. Um, there was all sorts of different kinds of responses. There was responses from um, theological or ecclesial voices. There were historical voices. There were kind of French nationalist voices and things like that. And it was just a very fascinating moment. I don't think I can ever remember people being so moved by a Christian sacred site mm. um, in my living memory mm. um, in any way, whether it's being adored or lamented and things like that. And it actually made me uh, reflect a little bit about the different sources of the sorrow behind the fire. 
Um, and what is it that Notre Dame represents? And I think there are all sorts of elements at play there. There's all sorts of reasons why people would find it to be particularly tragic. Uh, one of the things that it made me think about, though, was Notre Dame as representing a particular type of space that is uh, kind of threatened at the moment. Um, and it made me think of it in terms of this idea that was uh, proposed by a French anthropologist called Marc Auger. Um, he talks about the difference between place and non-place. Um, and non-places for Auger are places like airports, motorways, chain restaurants, chain hotels, all these places that are absolutely stripped bare of meaning or historical time that are alienating of individuals from each other that are purely moments, uh, places of transition uh, where you're, you're just there to, to go to a new place. And for Auger, these places are kind of paradigmatic of the way in which urban spaces are created today. And I actually wonder whether part of our lament for uh, Notre Dame is a lament for place. Place for Auger is a, uh, is a place, uh, is something specific. He call it, sometimes calls it anthropological place. Uh, and for him, places are relational. That is, they mediate relationships between individuals. They're historical in that they're kind of embodiments of a particular location's history. And they're also concerned with identity. They kind of speak to who I actually am as a member of the space that, 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 that the place is in. Um, and obviously non-places are negations of this. Um, so I, I find this absolutely fascinating and particularly someone who lives in, in uh, suburban or urban Sydney, which is the quintessential place of non-places, mm. uh, the place of uh, meaningless architecture, constant expansion, mm. um, places being put up and pulled down constantly um, and things like that. I might stop there and, uh, and just see, Joel, does this sense, this, this concept of non-place and place make sense to you? Yeah, and do you think it's touching on something about what we're losing when we lose places like Notre Dame? Yeah, I think somebody could come back to you and say, oh, partly people um, losing Notre Dame is losing something on their bucket list. Yeah. Right? They get yeah. ticked off as an act of tourism. Although in saying that, um, if you've been there and you've done the tourism of putting on the headphones and listening as you go around, mm. it's actually quite an evangelistic tour, right? In mm. the sense you go to the different places and you look around and you get the sense that this is, no, this is a vibrant worshipping community. Mm. This is not just a place you go to for the sake of, well, oh, it's the equivalent of taking a photo in front of the, in front of the Eiffel Tower, for yeah. example, or in front of whatever other, you know, landscape scene your cosmopolitan journey has taken you on. So I think there is something, you're, you're right, and something that this is a place that has a sacrality to it mm. um, that is being lamented at this point. I mean, the beautiful imagery of, I mean, tragically beautiful, but beautiful mm. of the people standing outside singing hymns and so on, right, as they, it's kind of the notion that there's almost like an extension of their very bodies that is going up in flames and burning down at this point. Um, but yes, your point about the non-place then I think is really, you know, I think this is 
incredibly fertile to mm. think a bit more about. Um, you know, so as I understand it, um, how these non-places come about is in part through sort of globalization mm-hmm. and the migratory, transitory bodies of sort of short-term contract workers yeah. and so on, yeah. um, and the flow of capital into different places mm-hmm. such that you get, you know, malls yeah. um, that we're familiar with, Westfield, I think yeah. is an Australian e- yeah, export yeah. actually, yeah. Um, around the world, and they all look carbon copies of each other. And yeah. In fact, they're all zoned yeah. often in places by particular laws to have their own spaces right that mm. exist outside of any fundamental uh, relationality to mm. location history and people mm. and then the goods that are produced there or the things that are produced there also have no actual tangible connection to a particular people yeah um so you know even ikea is yeah. a bizarre example in ways of we all go to the same cookie cutter store and yeah. um and now you know in like a almost industrial uh place of sydney right um yeah so i think there's something there and i think there's about um uh the cosmopolitanism of it um the idea that um the the these places can often serve those who are somewhat mm. rootless yeah. and that can flow through multiple spaces without that rootedness yeah. to a particular place, for example. Yeah, and so the, the rootlessness thing is an interesting one in that these places that are typically uh, non-places, uh, they actually kind of get romanticised a little bit in um, certain types of film and things like that, mm. like noir film, about the, the rootless um, detective, for example, driving down the motorway at night um, on a lonely road, sitting, um, staying in motor inns and things like that, that could be anywhere in the world. Mm. And that kind of valorizes that uniquely modern identity, um, that that rootless male protagonist um, and, and things well, like I, that. I think there's kind of, there's almost two characters to a non-place or in this cosmopolitan life and they, they flow with the notion of international capital and globalization and also mm. that that worker as well so one person is kind of almost the playboy right who can fly in and out of all these different places and then the other one is that the people who actually have to work and live in these yes. different places yeah right? the people who now have to for their lives because they're because their their communal living has been uprooted in the sense that all the business has been lost and gone shipped overseas or shipped out outsourced to other places Mm. and so they're no longer engaged in their own dignified productive work Mm. but instead are you know um uh what's the what's the big store in in the united states you know the big box like a hobby lobby or a um, walmart walmart you know or in what would it be in australia i guess a kmart or something like this right yeah um you know those sort of stores that's where people then become to work that's where yeah. they they that's where they find it so there's these two sort of elements and one the other one is the um is the kind of true sort of cosmopolitan mm. um person with who's got liquid funds and can kind of go and flit from place to place without yeah. having yeah. to settle into a particular place yeah i think um you know i think this is and try on try on different selves and things like that right. in different contexts and yeah like and that. i think this is uh, in, in sydney the the biggest um exact of this it seems to be barangaroo right oh yeah um in which you have quite literally developed a place where you go walking around barangaroo and all the shops are the generic ones that you'd find in any other place overseas and then that's mixed in with now a what is it something like 200 and something meters it's going to be Mm. a high-rise hotel that will charge forty thousand dollars a night 
and a you casino. Know, and a casino dedicated towards vice and so on. And who's mm. going to staff all that? Yeah. Right now, this isn't. But, this, but it's also, not about the. And yeah. it's got nothing to do with the location of Sydney. That's right. Sense, right. That's the point. Like it has yeah. nothing about the rootedness there. And its orientation instead is towards what? In this yeah. case, vice and making money. Yeah. And that's and and it's also. Um, yeah, I you know you think of like the the use of an indigenous name mm. um, uh, to signal goodness knows what, but then this this kind of completely atemporal, um, culturally void mm. uh, space, and the casino being one of the ultimate expressions of the non-place, in that it actually exists exists to dis- disorientate you, to take you out of time, mm. um, and things like that. I it's, I think it's I've been to one casino. I went to, this is uh, completely aside. No, no. When I was 18 or 19, I was living in a share no, house with my friend Josh and um, we couldn't afford, <laughs> this is not a recommendation <laughs> by the way. Uh, we we uh, were driving to uh, two year 12 kids to their formal. <laughs> and this is and we, get, this we is stopped better. at the casino <laughs> and they give you 10 bucks for each, they, sure. at the time they yeah. gave you 10 bucks for each chips to, yeah. to, to gamble. Mm. With for free if you signed up as a member, and we won our rent that week. <laughs> and I never gambled again. I don't where, think that's where, quite true, but where, I, I don't gamble. Uh, and thank I don't, goodness I, I don't, don't know if I should be digging deeper into this story. Where were the year 12 students as you did I don't this? think it was. <laughs> we dropped them off already. Oh, sure you did. Yeah. Sure. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, in the hub. <laughs> In the <laughs> lobby, in the lobby, and yeah, um, yeah. Well, that was when you became um, consumed by the Almighty God Gambler. Yeah, and it would not release me from its neon, neon claws. Yeah, that's right. Um, but, but I think the one one of the fascinating things here, and it, casinos tie into this, um, is Alger very much connects the creation of non places to the demands of of not just um, cosmopolitanism but capital as well. Um, it's it's. Uh, uh, a a kind of economy economy based on perpetual growth requires mm. the creation of non places, both for um, the exploitation of migrant labour, um, which you know is what cosmopolitanism requires, um, but it also um, constant expansion generally as far as the physical space must be mm. constantly. Um, well, in this case, heights. Yeah, uh, constantly. Yeah, heights. And, and with this is what we see in Sydney at the moment. Um, and, uh, you know, Hannah Arendt talks about this in um, one of her books, I think, The Human Condition, uh, maybe. Uh, she describes, like, people talking about the miracle of post-war Germany. And she goes, well, it's only a miracle if you don't take into account that once a, com- a cityscape has been completely demolished, then the, the um, construction industry brings all these goods into, the so- into society. Everyone gets employed to rebuild everything. And this is the, the idea of a waste economy or, or a, a expansion economy requires constant rebuilding, mm. uh, constant expansion and mm. constant change. And um, a historically grounded place um, kind of defies the growth economy. And so it must be kind of challenged um, if, if the economy is to kind of flourish. Um, and that's why, you know, the cityscape, I think, in Sydney mm. is the way that it is. Oh, and, and then you take Barangaroo, right? Yeah. Like the original idea was that you would have housing um, and it would be, you know, you don't even have social housing. Yeah. So, no. Now it's $40,000 in night hotels. Yeah. That would be the case. And even the public land that's associated with it, this common good that's been appropriated, is just, A, it seems it's pretty generic, and B, 
it's not even that, you know, um, large anymore. It's, it's now all hived <laughs> off for these businesses. But there's another thing you, you said there about non-places and Algiers' notion of it being atemporal, mm. right? That is, it's, it's the rootedness in that it doesn't have a particular history mm. other than in this case one of, you know, corruption. Yeah. Um, but, but it doesn't have a particular history. Now, this makes me think that this is fascinating for um, our, our sort of conversations that we have because it points to non-places and what we're discussing here with the casino and these sorts of things as a, a sort of typical of secularity, mm. I think. Um, if you understand secularity as sort of uncommitted or empty, so Charles Taylor and his understanding, his discussion of secular time, right? He talks about secular time as empty time. Um, uh, the no- notion that all time is fungible, mm. that it's not stepped or it's not different or it's not seasonally orientated and there's no sense of higher times and mm. so on. Instead, it's all flat and uniform and it's all the same, right? So I think that kind of idea of secularity is empty is fundamental to non-places, right? They exist as sort of neutral yeah. in the sense that they are supposed to absorb an undifferentiated mass of peoples. Now we know that in fact what they deal with has this sort of um, – you know, hierarchies of peoples because there's the people who get to experience the joy of it and so on. And then there's the people who have to all work at, but that notion that it's an empty space of it's an uncommitted space mm. in which all peoples in an undifferentiated manner yeah. can flow through it. Right. They represent nothing other than being a cipher for that, those flows, both of people and capital. Mm. Um, now I think that's interesting to then take it a step further and go, well, Secularity, as we'd probably discussed before, it's not typically then uncommitted. Mm. There's no such thing as an uncommitted space. It's actually truly empty, but it's committed to something there. So in this case, when we talk about this casino, Mm. it's clearly committed to something, right? The vice of making money and taking year 12 students Mm. to, you know, lead them down a road of perdition as you did (laughs) as as a younger man. Um, so, you know, uh, um, um, or, or almost they're committed to a certain, um, or also possible dislocation as well. Right. So I was, I was reading in preparation for this, I was reading some Graham Ward, his cities of God and mm. quote Jean-Luc Nancy, who talks about how there are certain places where we encounter each other merely, uh, in the form of dislocation, yeah. right. As customer to service representative yeah. and so on and yeah. so on. So there, so there are fundamental commitments. But there's a kind of what we're describing, I think, is also that secularity is not just about, you know, politics and this, mm. but actually secularity can be the nature of space itself. Yeah. Yeah. And the, the, it's uh, fascinating. Like human geographers talk about this a lot. The, the fundamental structures of um, cities are changing um, to be more alienating spaces. And part of this is. Um, create, creating fewer and fewer spaces for people to congregate, for example, mm. and that has a kind of political dimension to it as well because we don't want places of free association because people might get ideas. Yeah, and also <laughs> making think, it frictionless. Yes, that's right. right. So, I mean, I remember in when I lived in New York, right, that, that um, the same person would serve you breakfast, lunch and dinner if you went to the same diner mm. or the same sandwich shop and so on. But it was just kind of everyone just moved through as yeah. sort of zombie figures. Yeah. And that was, and it was very clear, that was the person serving you. Yeah. And you were the, you know, you yeah. were the, well, whatever different class system you were. So we create, yeah, this frictionless environment. Yeah. Oh, there's, there's so much to touch on there. In, in the last kind of um, section of, of this episode, I'd, I want to kind of return to the idea of explicitly sacred places, particularly churches. Um, I'd love to think about um, 
if the paradigm of um, late capitalism, whatever you want to call it, is the um, is, is spatio-temporally speaking is the non-place, surely then um, churches as sacred places, and I think there, there could be other forms of sacred places as well, but taking the example of a church, um, uh, surely they, they can actually be sites of resistance to this um, this move. And I, I should say that I don't think what we're saying here is um, that these types of places that we're describing are problematic because they're just distasteful or kitsch. Um, there's something... Sometimes. <laughs> well, that, that is a pro- that's a problem. But the, 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 the arrangement of space and place in, in, in this paradigm, it's, it's fundamentally dehumanising. Mm-hmm. Um, it, is, it is stripping human life of a, a lot of its significance, uh, especially our common human life, our ability to, um, without wanting to be too lofty, to, to see ourselves in the face of the other. Yeah, or, um, or they're unjust in the sense that they, yeah. car- you know, even in what you see before, the carving off of common space into private endeavour, yeah. right? That there's a, there's an in, there's an injustice there, and in that objects of beauty, yes. and as in Christian thought, we would affirm that that is beauty is, you know, mm. an aspect of God and this is participating in God, mm. that they are carved off from other people. Yeah. You know, the idea that only uh, only X percentage of Sydney siders probably actually get to enjoy what we mark out as the beautiful yeah. things of, of Sydney. Yes. Right. That is unjust. Yeah. And, um, you know, so put it this way, a lot of the time um, people can talk about the fact that that churches as institutions hold these beautiful places as somehow being reducible to just privilege or something like that, mm. that it's just this um, this privilege from a bygone era that we're clutching onto because of, I don't know, our institutional greed. Whereas I think there is a way that we could talk about this as, no, we are holding onto these Bases and places, and I'm talking particularly in my own context in in a, in, a, in Australia, and I but I think the same could be said for other parts of the world. We're actually holding these places in trust for the common good of the community around mm, us. Mm. That we are actually providing a locus of historical meaning and significance. I mean, that's problematic because of our indigenous heritage and things like that. But nonetheless, I think there's something important there. Um, and there is um, this troubling move um, in parts of the church to actually disregard yeah. um, the importance of ecclesial well, architecture. I think it's I think to it's, create to actually worship in yeah. non places. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And I think it and I think it goes to the root of you know when people talk about secularity, often they talk about political participation and you know the idea that my worldview matters and your worldview matters and it's all okay and we're all legitimate and so on. When actually, what we're talking about here is secularity can be in the very spaces we live in. Yeah. And what you're describing, the idea we get rid of this because it doesn't matter and so on, has a certain view of materiality, right? Yeah. The view of materiality. Or we being, use an instrumental argument saying right. we should we should sell it all and give it to the poor or yeah, something yeah. like that. And the material there is just it only refers to itself. It's, because it's not it's not indicative of anything greater than itself. Yeah. It only refers to itself, so it can be used instrumentally, which means it can be used as a place of worship perhaps, mm. but equally, like you said, we could sell it and give it to someone else, right? Mm. Now, I think that 
plays into the very secularity of like all this space being fungible, yeah. right? All this space being interchangeable, yeah. all this space being empty in that sense. Yeah. And when re- really what you need is an understanding that all this materiality mm. is fundamentally appeals to, is participating in a transcendent order, mm. right? That it is, um, that because creation itself is connected to is sustained by God. Mm. It can do better or worse ways. Yeah. Um, participate in God's own life of beauty of understanding and so on. So, um, so for example, you know, you mentioned with churches and, mm. and them being common space. Well, yes, like mm. take a cathedral, right. As a very central example, yeah. they are built over time in which this is, and they're always incomplete. Mm. Right. And that actually is a wonderful, not just even a metaphor, but it's almost a, you know, it's that physical instantiation of yeah. what it means to yeah. embody the Christian tradition, right? That this is people in the past through to the future in which you are communing with all of them in a design to lift yourselves up to God, right? Now, that doesn't have to just be in a cathedral, I think, right? Mm. That's I'm not, you know, saying, yeah, you know, you have to, that's where you need to go. Yeah. Although, go for it. But like, <laughs> you know, it could be in other places as well, but wherever you are, you, you, that's what you're thinking about. If you're thinking about, you know, you're thinking about resisting yeah. this sort of empty space and so on. You're, you're thinking about, well, how can I you be using space in a manner that actually is transcendent? Yeah. Oh, absolutely. Um, and I think there's, there's all sorts of um, ways in which, I mean, you know, I'd love for the church in um, my part of the world to return to the practices of opening up their churches, mm. uh, making the places places of prayer and meditation and contemplation, even for people who have no belief themselves, mm. Mm. Um, as is the practice, you know, that, that I found incredibly striking when I was visiting the UK, that that is still the practice, that the church, the church as a space is, exists there for the parish, even for people... Um, who don't go to that church or don't go to a church or have no faith um, mm. at all. I find that, remark- that remarkable. I think that's that's one just small way in which uh, it, it can be resisted. Um, that does happen, right? Yeah. I, I can't remember the name of it. Someone, if they can find it out, that's great. Um, there's a church that's just off the corner of Times Square and, um, and it's mm. well known because um, it has an abundance of incense. Um, because it, um, a, a, a parishioner who died, hmm. he was an incense uh, producer. Oh, right. And when he died, all the, um, all the, the children of that guy said, oh, what do we do with that? And then looked on their list as who is the biggest purchaser and went, okay, I sold it all to this church. So you go into it, it's off Times Square and you go into it and it's still completely still. And it just smells like wondrousness it's just like this beautiful space but it's completely incongruous Mm. right that disc that disc that discordance is actually quite amazing to to remove yourself from this um culture of infinite desire orientated oriented towards you know goods and satisfaction of your own experiences towards then the stillness of a church setting for example um now I, I now I think that just to um, hammer home one of these points as well, right? So as I mentioned before, I was reading Graham Ward's um, Cities of God a little bit again today, and he says, you know, the the question in Christian theology is not necessarily about the nature of God, but mm. God's relationship to the world, yeah. right? Because that's how we experience God. That's how we come to understand is through this mediation through the world and so on. Mm. So I think that you know, then when we talk about beauty and we talk about these things, mm. there's a question of well you can do it better or worse. Yeah, that's right. 
Yeah, just like you can use language right. uh, well or poorly, as right. I probably just did then. <laughs> uh, uh, in the same way space and, and, and materiality has a grammar, uh, it actually communicates something about the, your understanding of the cosmos. And this is what I think churches at their, their height that they do. They actually um, reconfigure your experience of the cosmos yeah. um, in all sorts of different ways. Which then they flow also, out, right? And, yeah, and they also mediate and shape the Christian life as well. Um, the fact that the, the baptismal font is at the back of the church that you pass through and uh, you pass by when you enter in the church and mm. pass again when you leave it, um, that you, you face, you're orientated towards the table. Mm. Um, uh, and, yeah, that all has historical meaning and liturgical meaning and theological significance. And the idea that you can replace that uh, with any generic space because all that matters is I don't know. Well, a little worse than that, potentially just simply generic space because you may actually go and occupy mm. a place that we've described as non-place, mm. a place that is sort of at its heart secularity in which materiality is understood as entirely imminent mm. uh, in which people can be unrooted and so on, mm. right? And then you have to think, well, am I transforming that space? It's pretty difficult to do mm. that, I imagine. Um, or am I actually... Um, you know, just simply being co-opted into it. Yeah, and am I being formed um, spiritually yeah. by this space? And I think our, the space is like you're des- describing, it's not about and that's it, Yeah. but it's about no, that there is a sort of central manifestation yeah. Yeah. that then can flow out to thinking about, we just discussed Barangaroo and, you know, mm. we could probably then think about, given that we have such great backgrounds in architecture <laughs> and public design and yeah. so on, we could think about what we would do instead. Now, I, I think as a last question I'm going to put to you because this is put to me. It was put to me in a, in a when I got a review once about talking about, and I was talking about Hobby Lobby in this article, and it was put to me the question, and there was a generous question to be asked, mm. but it was asked, is this just a, um, is this just being poo-pooing middle class, uh, middle or middle class or working class taste? Um, yeah. Uh, yes, it is. <laughs> 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 well, no, no, it's not. And, you know, um, there's so many ways you could take, take that. The, I mean, I, I do think there there is a sense in which um, uh, aesthetic taste needs to be cultivated in the same way that our capacity to communicate with language needs to be cultivated and having a particular uh, level of linguistic skill through education and things like that is actually a privilege because it actually broadens your um, your imaginative um uh, cognitive horizons uh, is actually quite hu- education is a humanistic process. I think a similar thing could be said of aesthetics um, in that um, it, Ter- Ter- Terence Malick, the filmmaker, for example, I'm thinking of him because I'm looking at one of his posters, can tell you more about human existence, I think, than even, dare I say, the Avengers film. Uh, but it requires discipline. We're going to have our and, first TIFF, David. <laughs> uh, and things like that. So that, that's part of it in that I think generally, uh, yeah, uh, taste needs to be cultivated and things. But that's not to say and, I don't appreciate things. But the other, the, fi- the final thing I would say is that, well, if you think about um, the Oxford movement or, uh, or, um, or the high church movement in England itself, 
it was it was a working class yeah. movement. It was it was a resistance to this idea that only the rich could have access to beautiful spaces. Um, it was a movement that sought to go into these newly um, created urban spaces that were completely mm. ahistorical and alienated, mm. and to actually create some sort of microcosm of beauty mm. and history and connectedness and for them. Mm. And, and I think you know, you know, go and do likewise. Yeah, and, and, <laughs> and actually, and actually, you're, yeah, I completely agree. And and that. The idea that this is just a working class taste, oh, you know, it's preparing working class and middle class taste. Well, that has to be cultivated as well, what you're describing mm. as. So to say something like, well, shopping at X place is something for the middle class and you're just poo-pooing that. No, well, there's a problem there because what you've done is you've gutted a community such that they have to shop at yeah, that that's place. Right. Or is the Sun or, in this country, the Daily Telegraph, this is the paper of the working class. Well, no, that's because it's been cultivated yeah. as the paper yes. of the working class yeah, and we've right. undermined things like unions engaging in educative functions and that's so right. on. That's right. So I, I talk about this all the time, mm. that um, in the 1960s, uh, even the 1950s, the unions in in uh, Sydney um, had it as part of their vocation to um, bring cultural sophistication to their members mm. through engaging them in art appreciation and art workshops, mm. because the idea was that the the working class uh, dehumanised by by capital, the demands of capital, and the role of the union was to rehumanise through exposure to culture, mm. uh, and uh, which is kind of seems like a baffling thing. Uh, to our to contemporaries, I think. And what we're suggesting here is that that uh, resistance of dehumanization, um, orienting people towards something true and good and beautiful mm. instead, that that actually should be ingrained in space mm. itself. Absolutely. Well, that's a wonderful place to finish. Uh, you've been listening to The U Catastrophe. Uh, please like us on Facebook. You can find us on Facebook by searching for us. Come on. Um, you can find us on Twitter. <laughs> Did you just say, come on? Yeah. <laughs> come on. Because I can't ever remember what the actual address for our <laughs> Facebook page is, but just search the catastrophe. Uh, I thought you were come saying, on. like, um, but come yeah, on. Come oh, on. What, 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 what yeah. other things do you have to do? do? <laughs> yeah. Uh, please also follow us on Facebook. You can find us, um, uh, we're at UCAT, E-U-C-A-T underscore podcast. Um, and, um, I, and subscribe to us, write us a review. We haven't had many reviews on our platforms yet. Mm. That, that really helps us. Uh, and it helps people, it helps us to come up, uh, further up the list in people's, in people's <laughs> algorithms and things like that. So all that kind of engagement really helps. And thank you so much for all the people that have sent comments to us. <laughs> We're questions. breaking the top 1000. <laughs> <laughs> there are dozens of us, dozens, but thanks a lot. And we will see you next week. Thank you.